You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Now, so far, I've refrained from saying anything very clear or dogmatic in response to the question that uh, you're seeing on the PowerPoint. That question, of course, is shall we baptize children? Uh, We, as elders, decided it was time to give you some idea of what what our approach is to this subject and why it is. And uh, so uh, if we decided to take this series of Sunday School lessons to do it, uh, this is the fourth lesson. There will be a fifth next week. Now, uh, in this lesson, I foresee that there may not be much time for questions or discussion. I do intend to review everything uh, I have <clears throat> said next week and give you ample opportunity for such questions and discussions. I do ask for a couple of uh, things with regard to that. Uh, first of all, I want you to listen carefully right to the end of what I have to say this morning. Otherwise, you may be uh, in danger of drawing misconceptions of what, I, uh, what I'm saying and what I'm concluding. The second thing is that if you haven't listened to the three previous three studies, I wish you'd take the time to listen to them on sermon audio so that we can have a, a useful and practical time of discussion next week. And again, that you don't have assumptions that are wrong about what I've said. So um, one other thing I want to say is that we're here at some level in the realm of practical judgment, so there's room to agree or disagree. I even disagree with myself, <laughs> or at least my previous self on some of the things I'm going to say. Uh, so if you disagree with me, I only ask that you be respectful, careful, considerate, and uh, because, uh, uh, and I will try to be the same way because Uh, I've gone through several permutations in my own life on this issue. Uh, I told you at the beginning that this issue would be treated best in three parts. Initial reflections, and here I gave you both a personal and pastoral chronicle uh, of my own experience. I've been in three different Reformed Baptist churches with three different practices on this issue. I also told you that my wife and I were both baptized when we were children, in quotes, and then baptized later in our 20s because we concluded that our first baptism was not genuine or valid because we were not believers, could not say that we were believers at such a young age. Um, I also told you that uh, um, my pastoral experience, something of my pastoral experience, and I'm not going to go back over that. Uh, I did have a conversation with my daughter, however, who's not here this morning because they have sick kids. Um, but um, I asked her the question, do you think that you were harmed or any way by the fact that even though you were converted at a very young age, and we believe she was converted at four or five, um, that, uh, that you were baptized till you were 16? And she said, no, I never even crossed my mind to think that I was harmed in some way by that. Uh, but anyway, uh, with those kind of personal reflections going on, 
Uh, section three was premise convictions. I told you I'm bringing into this study what I, several convictions that I think you'll agree with me about, and I didn't attempt to prove in detail. And the first one is that the answer to this duty question is revealed and regulated by the word of God, just as every other question about our duty is revealed and regulated by the word of God. Second conviction was that the scriptures teach the baptism of disciples alone and the wrongness of infant baptism. The third conviction was that the scriptures teach that all credibly professing believers should be baptized. The fourth conviction was that the scriptures teach that children may be converted to Christ and saved. And the fifth conviction was that baptism must be into the membership or carry a very close connection, at least, with with membership in a local church. Then we got into scriptural foundations, and I have covered I covered four of them, concluding last week. First of all, the biblical theology of minor children, looking at four passages: First Corinthians thirteen eleven which says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Ephesians 4, 13 and 14, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. John 9, 18 to 23 is a place where in a couple of places, the parents of the man born blind respond to the Jewish leaders by saying, uh, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And um, Acts 8, 12 is the text that says that after Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, and then the Greek uses the distinctive words for adult male and adult female, men and women alike. Last week, we looked at a scriptural understanding of church membership, and we saw a couple of things, that there's a very close biblical connection between baptism and church membership, and two, that there's no special church membership for children mentioned in the New Testament, and there is no provision for a special and lesser church membership for children visible there. Section three is a proper doctrine of ecclesiastical authority. There's this very common practice of letting fathers baptize their children, but in general, that's not a very good practice. I'm not being dogmatic or universal, because this whole matter of baptism is not a family ordinance. It's a church ordinance. Uh, the church in general, and pastors in particular, are the gatekeepers of baptism and church membership. And that's why we vote on applications for baptism and membership in this church. It's a biblical conviction based on the fact that membership in the church requires the consent of that local church. And only a credible profession of faith provides the warrant for baptism and church membership. And section four was a right rejection of cultural assumptions. Remember, I asked that question and told you, you should all turn to that passage in the Bible that talks about teenagers. Oh, there isn't one. And I think that one of the things that befuddles this issue in our day is that we have three categories of people, children, teens, and adults, whereas the Bible only has two, children and adults. And there are a lot wrong with the teenage mentality in our society and a lot of problems that result from it, but uh, that's one of them.
All right, well, all that brings me to practical conclusions. Practical conclusions. And here, and I have, uh, oh, let's see. Go on down there. I think I summarized, do I? Yeah. Yeah, there it is. Um, practical conclusions, carefully stated, first of all. And here's my statement. Ordinarily, baptism and church membership should be reserved for adults. Ordinarily is one of the words I use there. I've been a pastor too long to want to make absolute and dogmatic assertions about very practical issues like this one, because you always come across really odd situations that prove to be exceptions to the rule. So I'm keenly aware that very unusual and very public, puzzling situations can confront us as pastors and in churches, and if I had time, I could give you a few, at least one example of that, maybe a few more. But baptism and church membership, as this study is mainly concerned baptism, uh, I want to say that both baptism and church membership are closely connected, as I have shown. The practical conclusion applies to both. Should be reserved for adults. This is what I'm willing to say doctrinally and clearly. I refer, of course, to adults who are, as such, able to make a credible profession of faith. I also mean when I speak of adults, what I have said about the clear biblical distinction between children and adults. That's my doctrinal statement. <clears throat> I think I can support that from the Bible. But the next thing is not quite so clear. How old do you have to be in order to be an adult? And I don't believe any definitive age can be stated with regard to this, which applies in every single case. But there are several things that can be said about this matter of how old an adult may be. <clears throat> First, I don't believe that you have to be 18 to be an adult, which is what some, in fact, several churches that I know of that practice adult baptism say, you have to be 18 and they won't baptize you unless you are. Uh, so I'm not saying that. Second, I'm also defining adult in light of a clear rejection of the modern invention of the teenager who is neither adult nor child. I'm also defining an adult in light of Jewish and Christian history in which the threshold of adulthood was generally thought to be entered around ages 12 or 13. Now, basically, I've been treating that whole issue as a matter of Jewish and Christian tradition. Actually, I think I can show you in a bit that there's some biblical evidence for that Jewish tradition. I'll come back to that. And fourth, I am also acknowledging that this must be a matter of discernment on the part of the um, church and its elders if a person is an adult and as such making a credible profession of faith. All right, so the practical conclusion then biblically argued. I want to here present my arguments for that practical conclusion that baptism ought to be reserved for adults. Here's the first thing. There is no example of the baptism of a child in the New Testament. Now, that should be significant to us because our argument against infant baptism is that there's no example of an infant being baptized in the New Testament. And we consider that to be a pretty good argument. Well, the fact of the matter is, and it's simply a fact, there is no example of the baptism of a child in the New Testament. <clears throat> now, 
This isn't a particularly astonishing fact, given that most of the baptisms that take place in American Baptist churches are of children. But there's not one mention of a baptism of a child in the New Testament. But then a second argument is this. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are covenants and signs of the covenant which children are incompetent to make. The simple fact is that children are not competent to make binding covenants. They were not allowed to do so in Jewish culture, and they are not allowed to do so in our culture. Before the age of 18, in every state of the union, you have to have your parents' permission to make the covenant of marriage. Now, I, I did some checking in some websites. I found some interesting facts. You have to have parental, if you have parental consent, you can be married at age 15 in Kentucky. Now, <laughs> you may think, well, Kentucky is one of those, you know, redneck states and it's like that. But do you actually know what the youngest age you can be married with parental consent in? in the United States is what state that is? You'll never guess. Nope. (laughs) But it's a good guess. It's Massachusetts. You can be married with parental consent in Massachusetts at age 12. (laughs) I'm just quoting the website. That's what it said. Uh, So, you know... Baptism and the Lord's Supper are covenants. They're they're formal, visible covenants with God. And as such, uh, generally speaking, I think we can say that children are not competent to make make such important covenants, uh, external covenants like that. Thirdly, the immature nature of children, as taught in the Bible, makes it very difficult for them to make a credible profession of faith and for the church and its pastors to pass judgment on their profession of faith is credible. Because the simple question I have to ask myself as a pastor is this. Do I, as a pastor, take seriously what the Bible teaches about the instability of children? Because it does teach that children are unstable. Do I, as a pastor, take seriously their vulnerability to deception and thus self-deception? Do I, as a pastor, have to take seriously the fact that children think, speak, and reason like children, not adults? The answer to all those questions is yes, I do. Yes, I do have to take those things seriously because the Bible teaches all those things. Consequently, must I not, as a pastor, take these things into account when I'm talking to a child about spiritual things? Am I supposed to lapse into some sort of spiritual amnesia? And forget 1 Corinthians 13 and Ephesians 4 when I listen to their professions of faith? Am I supposed to adopt some form of spiritual gullibility, which is exactly contrary to the warnings of the Bible and too much influenced by the naivete and sentimentality of our culture? I don't think so. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that I'm, I'm suspicious of childish professions of faith. I'm only saying that I think there's a reason to suspend judgment. I'm not advocating suspicion about such professions or the rejection of childish professions of faith or, or scolding children or putting them down when they say they believe in Jesus. I'm not advocating any such thing. I do not have to convey suspicion and discouragement to a child, even if I'm suspending judgment about their profession because of their being 
a child. I can encourage them. I can talk to them about spiritual things. I don't have to take their professions of faith in the same way at 25, at five as I would somebody at 25. Anyway, or 15. Fourth argument. Children cannot undertake the duties and liabilities of church membership, which they undertake in baptism. To baptize children is to baptize them into the church and to confer upon them all the privileges, responsibilities, and liabilities of such membership. These privileges, and especially these liabilities like church discipline, are not appropriately given to children who cannot speak for themselves in public matters like those involved in the membership of the visible church. They are not appropriately given to children who cannot realize like an adult the possible consequences of their actions. Fifthly, the history of the people of God, both in the Old and New Covenants, generally supports the baptism of adults. The history of the people of God, both in the Old and New Covenants, generally supports the baptism of adults. Let me summarize the evidence. Our own particular Baptist history does not support the baptism of children, but exhibits the practice of only baptizing adults. The baptism of preteen children does not arise in Baptist circles till sometime in the 1800s. Before that, it was basically unknown. Then, having said that, the practice of Baptists in other countries not influenced by American practices was generally to reserve baptism for adults. I asked somebody this week about that who is from another stream of Baptist history, and they confirmed to me that they'd never seen a baptism before the age of 13. The practice of churches that believe in infant baptism... Okay, so now we're going to go, here's what, here's what I'm arguing. So we're Baptists. If we baptize someone, we have to give them the Lord's table, right? The two things go together. That's one of the big reasons some people want to have their children baptized. So, but a lot of the churches, Christian churches in history of practice, are not Baptists. They're infant Baptists, right? They <coughs> baptize children. Do those infants take the Lord's Supper? No. In fact, do you know the age at which communicant membership is allowed in those churches when they have to be confirmed and then become communicant members? It's 12 or 13, yes. That is the common practice throughout the history of the Christian church in those kind of churches, right? <clears throat> One more time, we get to that age of 12 or 13 that we've been talking about in the practice of infant Baptist churches by way of communicant membership. These children who are baptized into the church as infants must be confirmed, must have catechism lessons, must make their own confession of faith, and this happens at about age 12 or 13 in those churches throughout the history of the church. Um, And so I think... uh, Again, that points us in a very different direction with regard to this whole matter than some of us would assume from our backgrounds. And we've seen the practice of the Jews. Go look, go get your 15 commentaries on, 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 John, 
on the, the baptism of the blind man in John 9, and you'll see that most of them will tell you, when the Jewish parents said he is of age, ask him that in Jewish culture, you were a woman at age 12, and you were a man at age 13. Go read Gil. Go read a bunch of them, and they'll all say the same thing. Now, <clears throat> I know you say uh, <clears throat> that, uh, well, that's Jewish tradition. I know. But you see, the New Testament was written by Jews and practiced by Jews. And you think that that might have had something to do with the way they looked at things? I think so. It was only at this age, says the, says the Jewish Talmud, a 13-year-old boy is obligated to participate in public religious fast. Likewise, any vows he might make are to be regarded as valid. But baptism is a vow or a covenant. And if this rule is applied, I say if this rule is applied, then a child is not permitted to make such a vow. Now, I, I, I've only been presenting that as kind of Jewish tradition, and I really didn't think I could prove anything close to that from the Bible, but in a conversation this week with somebody in my family, I realized I was overlooking a passage. And I, and I think it's really cool, actually, so I want to show it to you. So <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> let me ask you this question. Uh, what important event in the life of Jesus occurred at age 12? Uh, that's a serious question. What important event in the life of Jesus occurred at age 12? What's that? Yeah, they found him when he, at the temple because he had gone up to the Passover with them. Look at Luke 2, verses 41 and 42. At age 12, he went up to the temple for the feast with his parents. Look at, and so look at 2, Luke 2. And this is really significant. You know how many events we know how old Jesus was when it happened in the Bible? We know from Luke that he was about 30 when he began his ministry. We know from Luke that he was taken up to the temple a, a few, a little bit after he was born uh, to, be, uh, to do rites of cleansing. And we know that he was 12 when he went to the feast of the Passover. Luke 2, 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. Now I know it doesn't say he doesn't go before he was 12, but why does it say this if, if he was going before he was 12? Why does it say this? I can't figure out any reason except that he didn't go up with them to the feast until he was 12. <clears throat> I certainly grant then that the text does not say explicitly that he did not go before, but personally I'm unable to explain the text without the assumption that he didn't. Why this distinction between his parents going up in verse 41 and, and his going up when he's 12 with them. And then also, it's interesting that he was conversing with the rabbis at age 12. And if around that time a Jewish boy became a man, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But, but now, this all, this all is interesting because it fits into an Old Testament pattern. Uh, 
According to the Old Testament, it is the males who are commanded to go to the yearly feast. Uh, look at Exodus twenty three seventeen. Exodus twenty three seventeen. Three times a year, and this is one of three different commands that say the same thing. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. Okay, but I asked the question to myself, were these adult males or boys and men? Or what, what were these males that were commanded to appear before the Lord at the feast? Well, I did a word study on this Hebrew word, translated males here. And lo and behold, look at what I found in Deuteronomy 20, 13 and 14. Deuteronomy 20, 13 and 14. <clears throat> when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the males, it says. It's the same word in the original. In it with the edge of the sword. But now look at the next verse, Deuteronomy 20, 14. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you should take as booty for yourself, and you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. So here, the term males is distinguished from women and children and, of course, animals as well. So the context makes clear that the command to come up to the feast is for the adult males. And when Jesus had turned 12, they took Jesus up to the feast. Make sense now? I think it does. So putting all this together, it looks very much like Jesus was taken to the feast of the Passover when he turned 12, because at that point he was deemed an adult male. This, if true, is confirmation that it was around age 12 that the threshold of adulthood was reached in biblical times in Jewish society. But now, uh, I thought that I should look into books that uh, argue for the baptism of children and see what their arguments are and see how I would respond to those arguments. So I did that, and that's my next point. The practical conclusion systematically defended. Here I want to take up some of the common objections to confining baptism to adult believers and respond to those objections. And so I reread this book this week, and I'm going to respond to what I think are its major arguments. Here's the first argument. All those who make a credible profession of faith ought to be baptized according to the command of Christ and is therefore sinful on the part of the church and its pastors to refuse them baptism. Here's my response. I completely agree. I don't argue with that at all. And I disagree with those defenders of adult baptism who admit that children can make a credible profession of faith but then refuse to baptize them. I just, that's all wrongheaded as far as I'm concerned. But you know what I'm going to say next, don't you? The whole question is whether minor children can make such a credible profession of faith. That is the question. Given what the Bible teaches about children, given their vulnerability to deception, given their instability, given the fact that they think, speak, and reason like children and not adults, how am I as a pastor or we as a church supposed to judge their professions of faith as credible? That's the question. Second argument. Childhood conversions are discernible. 
So here's this goes this goes to the question then, and uh, uh, I have several responses to it. First, I, I agree, childhood conversions do manifest themselves in some ways. I grant the saving grace is a mighty thing, which indisputably transforms everyone it touches. Second, I also grant that children may be converted at very young ages. Agree with both those things. But the third response is this. I think everyone must acknowledge that childhood conversions are only gradually discernible as children mature. Will the one who says that childhood conversions are discernible be equally confident about the conversion of a child at age four, at age eight, at age 12? So you're going to tell me that childhood conversions are discernible. Okay, I acknowledge that transforming grace is real even in children. But are you going to be equally confident when a child is 4, 8, and 12? How young are you willing to go? You're going to be like the guy who stood at his door and told me that his three-year-old child was was converted and I should baptize him? Really? No. Uh, So will the advocate of this position really present a child of age 4 to the church for baptism? I don't think they want to do that. But the reluctance to do this is a clear admission that there is a more and more difficult thing in discerning the conversion of children at younger and younger age ages. Age then is a factor, and everybody admits it, in discerning conversion, not just the advocates of adult baptism, but even the advocates of childhood baptism have to say there's a difference between age 3, 6, and 9, and how clear it is then, Right? A third argument. Refusing to give baptism to children harms their spiritual development by refusing to them the means of grace connected with baptism like the Lord's table and pastoral care. Okay, first response. The denial of such privileges only harms those who have a right to them. Since such privileges are dependent on making a credible profession of faith, And minor children cannot make such a profession. It cannot be harmful to deny them spiritual privileges to which they have no right. May I illustrate? It's harmful to an adult to deny them the privilege and blessings of marriage. But it's not harmful to a child to deny them those those privileges. And the same thing is true of the spiritual privileges dependent on church membership. Second response. The pastors ought to take children who are expressing concern for their souls and a profession of faith under their special care. They should do that. When a parent brings a child or a child comes to a pastor and they are confessing Christ, then those pastors should respond to that. The delay or deferring of baptism ought not to mean the refusal of pastoral care. And this is going to be one of my applications to pastors below. Fourth, Argument. Special provisions for church membership of children, which are reasonable, may be made. Well, first response. I commend the commitment to baptizing children into the church. It is right and biblical that all baptism must be into the local church. This is much better than baptizing children into nothing. Second response. The provisions for a special membership of children, which are advocated in this book, are probably contrary to the regulative principle. I said probably, but the fact of the matter is 
There's no provision for a different membership of children and adults. Matthew 18 does not say, tell it to the church, but not to the children who are members of the church. 1 Corinthians 5 does not say, when you are assembled, but of course I'm not talking about the children who are members of the church. 2 Corinthians 2 does not say that the person, the person was excommunicated by the majority, not counting the children. But New Testament doesn't say anything like that. But here's the third response. <clears throat> I strongly suspect that those these provisions sound good theoretically, they are very problematic to implement consistently. This could lead to all sorts of abnormalities with regard to maintaining a regenerate membership in the church. For instance, the provision is made that age 18, the child member will take a class and become, if they wish, an adult member. But what's often happening at this age? Young people are moving away to college and not even near their home church. And perhaps this may be dealt with by a great deal of effort, but the realities of the Christian pastorate make this unlikely in my view, and I think it's the recipe for all sorts of abnormalities uh, occurring in the membership of the church. I wouldn't want to try to do it myself. Anyway, fifth argument, and this is in the book. Children ought to be baptized before ages 17 and 18. My first response, I agree. (laughs) I agree with this completely. But the question is whether they're still children in their mid-teens. Yes, they should be baptized, but, but this is, they, sh- they should be baptized when they're 17 or 18 and making a credible profession of faith, but this is not the p- position which I am advocating. I am saying that the threshold of adulthood is reached at age 12 or 13, and thus this book is addressing a position which I don't accept. It's refuting a position which I also reject. Uh, and I want to show you something really interesting from the book in a second. But the author has, in a subtle way, I think, accepted the cultural norm, which assumes that teens are not adults. But this is contrary to the Bible, which only distinguishes children and adults. But now, um, there's this interesting quote in the book. Uh, is it up there? Yeah. Uh, which I found just really insightful. And... Uh, I don't agree with every word in it, but I think, I think looking at this quotation will tell you just how far we are in our age and generation from past ages and generations of the church. Look at what John Angel James says. Unscriptural caution is sometimes displayed toward those converts who are young in years when a young person is proposed as a candidate for fellowship. And now look what he says. And if they happen to discover that the youth is only 15 or 16 years of age, they seem to feel that the church is either going to be profaned or destroyed. 15 or 16. And this was raising questions in the church that John Angel James pastored. Uh, Is there then a canonical age for membership? Well, I'm kind of arguing that there is at least a difference between children and adults, so I don't maybe agree with John Angel James there, but He says, uh, and he goes on to say, it's the same rule established in the kingdom of Christ, which is observed in the kingdoms of the world, and everyone considered as unfit for the privileges of citizenship till he arrives at age 21? Well, (laughs) if not, what right have we to speak about the age of a candidate? Piety is all we inquire into, and whether the individual be 14 or fourscore, 
We are to receive him, provided we have reason to suppose that Christ received him. Now, I have to ask this question. I, I don't mean to be mean or anything, but good grief. <laughs> good grief. I mean, we're talking about baptizing kids that are four or five? And John Angel James was saying it was controversial in his day to baptize kids that were 14 or 15? What have we come to in our country? Well, <clears throat> anyway, I find that a very interesting quote. And I agree with John Angel James that we should not have a problem with baptizing 14 or 15-year-olds that make a credible profession of faith. Completely agree. Don't have a problem with that at all. So... The practical conclusions practically apply. That sounds puritanical, doesn't it? Regarding minor children. First of all, children should be pressed to be converted. And if you've sat in these pews very long, you know that we do. Second application regarding minor children. Children should be taken under special care who profess Christ and seek baptism by the pastors. If your child expresses a profession of faith, which you as a parent think may be genuine, and if you think good, bring them to a pastor to talk. We will not reject them, and we will not discourage them. And we do want to talk to them. And um, in many cases, and I'm doing this right now with one, we will take them under special care and set up regular meetings with them. Such children should be encouraged to wait patiently for young adulthood for baptism and church membership, but they should not be discouraged in their profession. Kindness and attention and and the opportunity to talk to their pastors will be sufficient for such children until they're truly ready to be baptized. And we will give them that. But second, regarding parents, parents should remember, and I think sometimes in our day and age when everything is is hung on this decision for Christ that people need to make, parents should remember that baptism does not assure the perseverance and final salvation of their children. You're getting them baptized doesn't mean they're getting to heaven. And we must not forget that. Perseverance on the narrow way that leads to life is essential, and baptism does not assure that. Parents should remember that others may not see in their children what they see and may not be able to see it. And that's not because they're being mean or obtuse. It may be because they don't live with that child 24-7 like you do. Parents should remember that they are not the gatekeepers of the church. The church and its pastors are the gatekeepers. And they should respect that authority in their pastors and in the church. And parents should remember that premature baptism and church membership for their children may lead to very painful situations later, which also may be negative for their spiritual development. And parents should encourage children who are concerned for their souls and concerned to be baptized to talk to the pastors of the church. They should know that they will receive a kind reception and they will be taken under special care. <clears throat> now, 
Now, regarding pastors, there are several things I want to say here. Pastors should preach for the salvation of children. Children can be converted. Children are converted. Children may be converted. And pastors should preach for the salvation of children and try to have them in their eyes and mind when they're preaching the word of God. Children are not too young to be saved. To say that they may be too young to make a credible profession is not to say that they are too young to be saved. And then... And I say this both to ourselves as pastors and to young men out there that want to be pastors. Pastors should resist being controlled by parental sentiment in the holy matter of baptism. And this is really not easy. This is really not easy. It is easy for us to imagine some parent getting really angry with us, picking up their marbles and going home. If we won't see... Uh, the ground for baptizing their children. If we cannot discern with sufficient credibility in their children's profession uh, enough credibility to baptize them. Baptism, however, is too holy for us to be controlled by such carnal fears. And you have to understand that we're, we're the, we are, as the Bible calls us, the stewards of the mysteries of God. And we may have to disagree with you sometimes. And we cannot lay hands on anyone or baptize anyone too quickly. If we do, we share in the sins of others. <clears throat> and as I've said several times, pastors should provide special care for minor children who profess Christ and seek baptism. They should provide special care. And as I said, I'm doing that for someone right now. It's a long-term kind of thing, but we're not going to neglect children who are feeling spiritual concern for their souls and a desire to own Christ in baptism as they see others doing. We're not going to discourage them. We're not going to reject them. We're going to accept them and work with them and teach them. Right? Now, I want to go back to one key issue here. Uh, I do believe that baptism should be reserved for adults. But that doesn't mean I accept, or we as your pastors uh, believe, that that means nobody under the age of 18 should be baptized, which is the practice of some. So what am I teaching here? I'm teaching a modified form of adult baptism. But I'm trying to define adult in a biblical way and not according to our cultural norms. So what I'm saying, and I I think I want to say fairly doctrinally, and I think with conviction, is that only adults should be baptized. What I'm not saying is that I know exactly when every child becomes an adult. I I know what the rule of thumb is. When I talk about 12 or 13, I'm talking about a rule of thumb, but I'm not talking about an absolute rule. And so you must not think that I am, or your pastors are. We are, we are talking about uh, the fact that there's, there are reasons in the Bible to refrain from baptizing children. There are also reasons in the Bible to 
think that adulthood begins to be a reality for most children around the age of 12 or 13, okay? Does that mean that every 13-year-old girl is an adult? No, but it does mean that some may be, and that becomes a live issue then. Does it mean that every 13-year-old boy is adult? Maybe not, but it does become a live issue at that time, and we should begin to... um, I think there's this tendency, and maybe it's some, this is one of the practical lessons we should learn. There's this tendency not to expect of, expect of, our, uh, of our, our teens what we expect of adults. Now, I know there's room for, for being patient, but there's also room for realizing that this whole idea that from the age of 13 to 18, you kind of get to do your own thing and you don't have to act like an adult really isn't biblical really isn't biblical, okay? Well, let me close in prayer, and uh, we'll have time for discussion and so forth next week. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to talk uh, about this important and yet difficult issue, and we ask that you would be pleased to grant us to know your help and your mercy, and you would teach our souls, and you'd give us unity on this issue, and and grant, O Lord, that we might know how to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace as we endeavor to walk together and tread together that narrow way that leads to life. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.